Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Guy Cibrano. This is episode two of the Beyond the Page podcast, the audio version of some of the stories you're reading in golf course industry. And joining us this month is Tim Morgan. Tim is the author of the monthly Outside the Ropes column, and he's one of the most candid voices in the industry. We decided to have Tim on the podcast to discuss the year that it was in 2019. We're glad that Tim was able to join us, and we know that you're going to enjoy hearing his wide-ranging thoughts. It's great to have you on the podcast. I think we did this last year. Uh, We always enjoy recapping the year with you. And the first thing I want to ask you is, how much did you miss Johnny Miller in 2019? Well, you know, in some respects, I do miss Johnny. Uh, he did provide a little bit of an insight, and he wasn't uh, bashful about you know holding back his opinions by any means. But as we all know, the TV announcers are what they are. Uh, they say what they say. Do they help us agronomically? Do they help the golf course superintendent community? Uh, in some aspects, yes. Uh, but but in, you know, and I and I think the superintendent community. I think we have to reach beyond just getting a mention of so-and-so superintendent and his staff did a great job. I think we have to kind of pursue the fact that information put out by Johnny or whomever today, you know, you see, uh, what is it, Costas and and Gary McCord have gone by the wayside for whatever reason. Uh, I think the the information needs to be put out. But, yeah, I miss Johnny in some way, shape, or form. You know, he's a hell of a player and pretty much a good dude in the long run. But, you know, in some, some aspects of what he did, for our industry, he was a little bit misinformed. Tim, how much do you think the average golf viewer wants or cares about agronomic talk? Well, that's a great question. Uh, I think there's some curiosity, and they wonder why what they see every weekend cannot transfer to their own property. Uh, so they are curious in why, uh, but for the most part, probably not too enthralled with agronomics as we are um, you know I watch a tournament and I'm, I'm always looking for things that I would look for in my past life uh, and then when the superintendent prepare, prepares an exquisite surface which they do 99.9999% of the time it's kind of interesting to see but the average guy they don't know they don't care most of the time it's you know it's grass water fertilize it mow it and let's have a tournament Tim you've been involved in golf for decades inside the ropes and also just as a person that that loves golf and is a person that enjoys watching it on the weekend still even after all your experiences in the game when you watch a golf event what are you looking for on television when i watch it i i kind of like i first look at at obviously the golf course because that's what everybody looks like in our arena i really like to see you know the culmination of hard work dedication timing precision that the tournament superintendent puts forth to provide the conditions for the players that that's first and foremost secondly kind of like to look how the golf course is set up you know what the bunkers look like kind of what the rough height is obviously green speed and firmness watch the way the ball bounces and rolls uh, i really am a, kind of addicted to how the ball rolls on a surface 50 percent of the game is on the putting surface that's where those guys and women make their money is on the putting green. So I look at that. 
Uh, beyond that, I start to watch golf swings, and I like to watch the best players hit a golf ball because I, I've said it a million times, a well-struck golf shot is one of the three greatest feelings in the world, and it's so hard to get that feeling, and those guys seem to do it all the time, so I watch how they set up, how they swing the club, how the ball reacts, uh, because that would always help translate into what I was trying to do on the golf course. And I'm just a fan of, of, of the players. I love the unbridled enthusiasm when they hit a great shot. I love how they can do it under incredible pressure. I, you know, you look at our Masters champion this year, what Tiger did. I mean, what could have been going through his brain on the 72nd fairway at Augusta National? And, I mean, to be able to take the club back, and he almost hosled it. It sounded like he kind of missed it. But to make that shot and then go on to win, I mean, that's pretty special. No, no one really knows how to do it unless, unless you've been in that particular position. So that's I watch how they comport themselves on the golf course. You brought up a great word there. Uh, you're still a golf fan. How important is it for people involved in our side of the industry, golf course superintendents, assistant superintendents, architects, builders, researchers, how important is it for them to be a golf fan and have a zest for golf? Do you feel that that leads to some longevity in our part of the industry, if, if you do still have that, that fandom and joy, joy with the game? Wow. If you, if, you, well, if you don't have a zest for being outside, being in some of the greatest environments in the world, working with some of the great, greatest people in the world, you really should get out of the business. Um, you know, I think there's, there's such a love for what we do. It's a, it's a unique profession. And I think, you know, to, to, I think I may be, I paraphrase Pat Jones in his, his last column uh, that he wrote for our, our wonderful magazine and that, uh, you know, we do what we do because it makes us happy. And, you know, if you're an architect and you, you know you've designed a really cool golf hole, it makes you happy. If you're a golf course superintendent and you, you've got the place looking the way you think it should look, you know you've done a great job and it's a personal satisfaction. And if you're a player, amateur, professional, I mean, I just look at our members that aren't very good at the clubs that I belong to, but they just love going to the golf course. I kind of get into a mental freeze when it's time to go hit a golf ball. Uh, you know, Karen, my lovely wife, will tell me, you, you forgot this or you forgot that. And I'm just, I want to go to the first tee. I want to hit a golf ball. I want to be in a cool environment with some great people. So it, it's kind of a self-promoting zest for the sport and if you don't have it you're not going to be in it because it's it's not easy you're dealing with things we're dealing with two things that we have no control over mother nature and people and that's the challenge on top of everything else so i mean you got to have a zest or you're not going to be successful in one of our conversations before you wrote the grainies i think we we talked about how tough it was to come up with categories and and winners this year it was kind of a a blah year after the the masters tim what are your thoughts about first off what happened in the masters and then everything that else that followed in 2019, not so much from an agronomic perspective, but just from a, uh, a, a, a greater golf perspective. Well, you know, being around on Sunday in 1986 and, and watching Jack do what he did, uh, it's pretty cool. So, he didn't come back. He only came back from kind of age discrimination. People wrote him off all, all of it, 46 years old. And I'd love to be 46 again. So to see what Tiger did, you know, he came to an, to an arena that he's very familiar with, that he knows he has control over, yet the pressure was there. But you watch it on Sunday. I mean, it was special to me because Tiger was being Tiger. 
if you remember on the on the on the twelfth hole, both uh, Mer- uh, Molinari and Finau dumped it in the hazard. Tiger's on the green. He just walked over the bridge, stood there with his arms full, and says, "Okay, boys, bring it on." You know, if you can't do it, you don't belong. And that's that's the defining moment. That was pretty cool. That was Tiger being Tiger. That's the best being the best. So that's what I that's what I liked about the Masters. You know, after that, our our infamous Grainy Awards uh, it was kind of a quiet year, but there were some special mentions. You know, I think uh, as I wrote in our best supporting actor. You know, my longtime friend Jack Holt, who had been the assistant at Pebble Beach for 39 years, uh, you know, he's, he, that, that's incredible. What he's seen on the peninsula, how many rides around that golf course he's made, how many golf shots he and I had hit to the seventh green during those early morning and late afternoons, you know, inside the ropes. You know, I, I, I really enjoyed Jack and his, and his uh, companionship and his most definitely his, his friendship. But I will tell you one funny story if we have a little bit of a moment. Cut me off if we don't. Jack and I would hit, you know, Jack specifically would hit thousands of golf balls in the seventh green. Never had a hole in one at all. He always wanted to get a hole in one. He eventually did get one. But he and his dad and I were playing Pebble one afternoon before the 99, and the fall of 99, I believe it was. Maybe it was 98 before the amateur in 99. And we get to seven, and before they redesigned the fifth hole and put the big houses up there, he and his wife, Shelly, and his son lived there. So as we were walking down six, Shelly and, and Scotty joined us, and, and, and you know Scotty's in a, in the baby stroller. We get up to six green, finish six green, and Shelly and I are standing on the seventh tee. And Shelly had a decent game. Well, anyways, long story short, Shelly, I said, "Wait, you want to hit one?" She said, "Well, how far is it?" I said, "It's one ten or whatever it is." What should I? Yeah, I said, "Here, use my eight iron." Well, you know what she did? She jarred it. One swing, ball in the jar, and now she's just. She looks at me. She says, "What do I do?" And I said, "Well." If I were you, I'd start jumping up and down because that's pretty cool. One swing and it's in the jar. So, of course, Jack sees, you know, from the sixth green, he sees us on 17, Shelly jumping up and down. Of course, he panics thinking his son has just fallen into the ocean or whatever. And he comes over and after thousands of golf ball, one swing and his wife gets a hole in one and he's still struggling. So that was a defining moment in our friendship. Uh, but he, he's a good dude. But other than that, I don't. I mean, there's a lot of interesting things that we spoke about this year. Uh, I will tell you that, uh, you know, I, I do support women in our game. It's nice to see Susie Whaley and, and Jan Beljan, the head of their associations. That's a huge step. Obviously, Judy Bell was the pioneer in that regard for the USGA back in the day. I am kind of glad to see, you know, kind of Gary McCord and Peter Costa step down. They really didn't do us any favors out there. Uh, you know, the comments about broccoli and grain toward the setting sun at Pebble Beach and Torrey Pines and all that kind of stuff it gets a little old. And I think that stick had just worn itself out. So, you know, the audience is a younger audience. Uh, you know, you look at some of the golf magazines for those, the Golf Digest, Golf Magazine, etc. I don't think they put anybody on the cover that's under 40 unless it's someone who does something really super special. I think you and I had this conversation. Uh, it's going to be interesting, you know, when the when sports betting comes to golf. And, you know, knowing who can, can play well under pressure, who can putt, who can't putt. And then, as we saw just last week, who knows the rules and who does not know the rules. I think uh, Mr. Reed may get a special exemption into the 2020 grannies because, you know, I go back with the rules of golf a long way. I never, never said I was an expert. I just learned from really, really great rules people. But the one premise they always spoke about was in the, when you're on a golf course, uh, the, the thing is avoid the appearance of evil. 
and what you do when you're playing golf. Uh, playing golf. If you kind of keep that in the back of the, your mind, most of the time you're not going to violate a rule. But if you kind of do something that looks evil, it probably is. You probably are going to get a penalty. So, uh, in that regard, and then of course, you know, I can't let the governing body go unscathed. Two interesting things that we gave Mike Davis the best silence, silent screen award because we didn't hear a peep out of him, uh, except uh, saying thank you to Pebble Beach on Sunday afternoon on the 72nd green, which was a relief. Um, it is not the United States Mike Davis Association. It is the Golf Association. So you're supposed to put the association and the U.S. Open first. So I'm glad that kind of went away. Kudos to the executive committee for putting the hammer down on that, though they will have some issues with amateur status going forward. They're going to have to figure all that out. And then the, the, uh, the early uh, volunteer retirement program I found interesting. Some of our dear friends within the United, some of my dear friends within the United States Golf Association, and those specifically in the golf turf, you know, are kind of, I don't know of any of them who truly volunteered to retire. So that was an interesting phenomenon in the golf world. But, and that's sad because there's a lot of good people that put in a lot of time and a lot of hard work for the good of the game, uh, put their egos aside and went forward. And, and that's, that's kind of got, that got me a little sideways. But, you know, other than that, it, it was a little quiet. I don't know where we go from here. Um, but I think, you know, going back to uh, Augusta, I think what they did for the women's amateur, um, you know, it was kind of cool. Obviously, I love the drive, chip, and putt competition they do. I think that's so cool for the kids. You look at the, you know, just the unbridled joy of the kids, you know, on the 18th green or chipping. I mean, that's just that's pretty cool. And you know, how can you not get excited when Condoleezza Rice comes up and says you did a good job? So, you know, good for Augusta kind of putting to bed some of the, the chauvinism and, and the uh, issues that are affecting our social climate today. Well, that, there were a lot of great anecdotes and answers there. First point I want to touch on on what you just said. Patrick Reed, Bryson DeChambeau, and Matt Kuchar are playing in the final group of a major. Who do you think the golf community is pulling for? First, the price will be Matt Kuchar. The worst thing he did was stiff his caddy. You make a million dollars, you give the guy whatever it was. I mean, what happened to the 10% rule? Uh, I think I think Matt Kuchar, because Reed just does it to himself. <clears throat> Excuse me, there are those you know, those people that are public figures that, that they don't help their cause. And, and Bryson made out to be smarter than he probably really is. But it's interesting to see how his game will evolve as a side note after putting on 25 to 30 pounds of so-called muscle i don't know you know the muscle he needs to work on is between his ears because that's where most of the game is played anyway so it'll be interesting to see but i would i would put my money on on, uh, matt kuchar do you think adding that much muscle will make bryson dechambeau play faster and in all seriousness tim what do you make of the pace of play conversation we had in 2019 does social media just kind of amplify that conversation that's probably been going on for for a long time and also is there anything golf course superintendents can do at the local level to, to push things along? First part, with, with Bryson and his newfound strength, if you look at those that have done that, they are having problems. Okay? I mean, while Gary Player did it back in the day when it really wasn't uh, agreed that you know, adding muscle, you know, Gary was a, a little bit slight in stature. He wanted to get stronger, obviously, to keep up with Arnold, who was pretty strong, and Jack, who was also pretty strong. But I think you start to affect the golf swing, and I wonder from an injury perspective, uh, I've got several uh, friends that are very good teaching professionals, and they, they're they curious. I mean, you're, you're basically swinging a, you know, 
a, a 75 gram piece of metal. It, it doesn't require to be able to bench press 400 pounds. Um, and then you lose the flexibility in your swing. If you watch the old uh, movies of Byron Nelson, Sam Snead, I mean, those are some gorgeous golf swings. Bobby, even Bobby Jones back in the day when he did those instructional videos in the 30s for crying out loud, it was just a very smooth and rhythmic golf swing. I think you need strength, but you don't need to be, you know, an offensive lineman. Because look at Tiger. Tiger's injuries came from a lot of that. Uh, the second issue, uh, pace of play. I think it's a joke. Uh, you know, when I, again, when I was allowed to officiate, you know, you're given a stopwatch, you're, the players have a certain amount of time to hit a golf shot. You know, to, to, I, I've seen instances where players take, you know, a minute and a half to two and a half minutes to hit a golf shot. I, I don't know what you're trying to figure out. But all that does is set a bad example for people who are watching players and trying to emulate being like them. And here we are in an industry that says it takes too long to play golf and interest in golf is declining because the sport takes too long, yet the people that we idolize and put at the top of the heap take forever to hit a golf shot. I, I mean, really, what are we playing for most afternoons? We want to have a little fun, maybe have a little money on a side bet with your Saturday four ball. But there are people behind you, and the one thing you have to remember, you're not that good. You really aren't. Just kind of, let's just move it along. Now, from a superintendent's perspective, you know, to help the situation, do we need four-inch rough? No. Do we need narrow fairways? No. Do we need to put the old, uh, you know, the tournament hole locations on, on the busiest day? Do we need to move the tee grounds back? Not really. Uh, we can do it. At, you know, we all know there are certain times when the, the members want it a little tougher, you know, kind of when the, the men's group goes out, whether that's Wednesday afternoon or Saturday morning, and even the women's groups, the better player want a little better test. But for the most part, 90% of the people who play the game aren't that good. They're just trying to have some fun. So, you know, excessive green speeds. I was on, watching on Twitter uh, recently. There was a lot of chatter about, you know, how fast is too fast. And, you know, what all the, the, the uh, Twitter experts are saying, you know, what is the ideal speed and all that kind of stuff. Most speeds in today's technology are going to be, you know, 9.5 to 10.5 without really thinking about it. Why do we have to penalize the poor player even more? And I, I really don't. And I also will put the blame on, on the amateur golfer, you know, the, the typical club golfer, that I never understood, Guy, why the worst players want the fastest greens. <laughs> I, I just, you know, three and four putting is not what I want to do this afternoon. I, I expect a, a smooth surface, relatively firm, and an acceptable speed for our budget, our labor staff, and the clientele that we're trying to prepare the golf course for. Uh, but, you know, it's I, I just get, if I'm playing and someone in front of me is just dawdling, I, I just, if I'm walking, I'll try to walk in front of them. If I'm in a cart, I'm definitely blowing by them because I got other things to do. I'd make the argument that the two best players in the world currently, uh, Brooks Kepka and Rory McIlroy, are two of the, the fastest players in the world, especially at the professional level, and they've been very vocal about pace of play. Is this something where players on the, the, the televised professional level are going to have to take matters into their own hands? And even at the local level, is this a situation where golfers are just going to have to say have enough? Or is there something that the governing bodies that can do and that people manage, managing facilities can do about it? I think the, the governing bodies, that being the RNA and the USGA, they have to start throwing some penalties and strokes around. That sets the precedent. Now, the tour is a different deal because – well, I know Mark Russell and Slugger White and a lot of those guys, I've known them for many, many, many years, 
they're great guys, but they, you know, the bottom line is they work for the players. So the the offender on the PGA Tour, which most of us watch, really is going to get away with dawdling and taking a long, long time. You know, the guy at Torrey Pines last February on the 18th hole, what, did he wait five, six minutes and then never made the shot in the first place? You know, someone's got to say something to those guys. Now, on a local level, you know, the, the, the daily fee facilities, you know, it's hard. You know, if you're a ranger, you know, you're going to get some clown give you a lot of stuff about telling you, you know, you need to pick it up a little bit. But you got to try because, you're, you know, those folks are trying to make money. At a club level, I just go out and tell the guy. I mean, we had a guy at, at, at our club here, and, and uh, he, hey, Tim, you going to join us for lunch? And I said, yeah, I'd love to join you for lunch, but let me ask you one question. He said, what's that? I said, do you eat as slow as you play? Because by the time we get there, it won't be lunch, it'll be dinner. You know, I won't tell you the response I got, but you're not that good. So the pace of play is going to be an issue, but it's got to start at the top. Tim, what, what are your thoughts on six-hole options, 12-hole options, uh, short courses? Facilities are trying to move towards that if they have the land and routing. What are your thoughts on, on, on that trend? It certainly seemed to really, really pick up in 2019. It does, and I think it's good because if it stimulates interest to go beyond 6 or 12 or go beyond a par 3 or a short course, I'm all for it. I, I, I think, you know, you and I have talked about this. I've written about it. I don't care if it's a, if it's a putt-putt or top golf or any of those. If it gets you stimulated to play golf on, on, on a level that, you know, an average member would do, that's great. And then I don't mind six holes. We have... Here where I live at Moss Creek, you know, our north course basically has a five-hole routing and an eight-hole routing for those that don't want to go deep into the to the into the development and, and get kind of away from the clubhouse. So I'm all for it. There was a club, I believe it's the Peninsula Club, and I, and I apologize if I get the name wrong. I was north of Charlotte, North Carolina, where Reese Jones, the way he designed it, you basically can come back to the clubhouse at three, six, nine, and thirteen holes. So that's outstanding. Now, again, back in the day, I had the, the, the privilege of being a, a member at Ballastraw. I was an honorary member, which means you don't pay dues, you don't have an opinion, but that's okay. And in the wintertime, we played a lot of winter golf, late fall, early spring golf. And you could take up anywhere from 7 to 14 holes, you know, walk on a Saturday afternoon. You get a 40-degree day in January, and there's no snow. And at the time, Mark Kuhn says, go play. I think that's just enough. I have a hard time. Uh, playing a full 18 sometimes, unless I'm with friends or family, or have a unique golf experience over Thanksgiving. I finally got to play Pacific Grove uh, Muni, the old poor man Cypress, and I played 18 holes in a howling wind on a beautiful, you know, kind of Scottish day where the sun was out, then it was raining and back and forth. Uh, Those 18 holes went by like no time at all. But, yes, the more we par threes, Whatever we can do to stimulate interest is a good is good for the game. Tim, I would say in my travels and meetings with superintendents this year, there's more optimism at the end of this year. People aren't as worn down. 2018 was a rough weather year in a lot of places. There were some natural disasters. As we close out 2019, what are, what's the vibe you get from superintendents and people from the industry? Was this a pretty benign year across the board? I would say most of my clients and most of the superintendents or club officials that I speak with, they're cautiously optimistic. They, they see an increase in rounds. They see an increase in memberships. Uh, they have money. Uh, there's, uh, while there's not a lot of new construction, there is an awful lot of renovation. 
which means clubs are trying to improve their facility. They have the cash. Uh, we're going to do uh, both at Fiddler's Elbow in New Jersey and here at Moss Creek in Hilton Head. Uh, we're going to do a boatload of rounds. Now, these are no, Fiddler's is a 54-hole facility, and Moss Creek is 36 holes. But we're going to have record highs for rounds. So that's good. Uh, I think more clubs are starting to, to kind of, what else can we do to, you know, bring everybody to the club, the lifestyle golf facility, so to speak, where you have the tennis, the pickleball, the fitness. You know, we have a marina, we have horse trails, we have fly fishing at, at, at Fiddlers. There's all sorts of cool things to bring uh, people to the golf course and then to kind of lighten the old stuffiness around the old blue blood atmosphere you know you want to come to a club and you want to relax it's okay to wear a nice pair of jeans and a golf shirt it's not going to be the end of the world you know the golf course isn't going to float into the ocean just because you wear a pair of jeans to eat out on the back deck it's not so that's i think cautiously optimistic as you know when you say weather we have no control over the weather you know here in the low country you know from labor day to halloween everybody's on pins and needles because of it's time to reason with hurricane season. And I just, I, my heart goes out to anybody that suffers any natural disaster, hurricane fires, mudslides, whatever, earthquakes, etc. cetera, uh, because you don't know how bad it is until it happens to you. But uh, climate's changing. And those of us that live by the water, uh, the oceans and the gulfs are going to be warmer. We're going to have more of these instance, instances going forward. And that's what's going to hurt us. But I, 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 I try to be a half full. I think the industry is good. It's always going to be a niche uh, sport. We're going to have anywhere from 22 to 28, million in this country playing golf. So we have to make the best of it. We only have a few more days left in this decade, Tim. As you reflect on the last 10 years and the 2010s and teens, how would you say agronomy has advanced in this decade? And how would you say the superintendent has advanced in the last 10 years? Wow. Uh, first off, just information. There are so many smart people out there in our industry providing us with information on how to take care of turf grass, how to maintain it properly from pathology to weed science to entomology to construction, uh, technology, uh, equipment development. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's light years, and it, I think it's only going to get better, and I hope it does. People ask me, well, you know, I feel like a dinosaur, I kind of am, but, you know, back in the day, what did you do? Well, the concepts really haven't changed that much on what we do, uh, but the equipment is better, much like the, the golf equipment to play the game. Uh, the concept is still the same, just the implements are better uh, to do it with, and the same in, in turf grass. When you get into GPS and robotics and imaging and, and drone work and all the things that we can put on uh, a computer screen uh, and have in our back pocket or on our, our course vehicle or whatever. It's astounding to me, and, and, and I can't even get into the technology and irrigation design and what that industry is doing for us, and it's only going to get better. It, it, it's never going to make the superintendent's life easy. It'll make it tolerable because you have some great tools, but as I always say, we deal with people and weather. We have no control over either, and the people really don't get what we do unless they've done it at some point in their life. This might be tough to think about, Was but is there anything that you did not see in 2010 on a golf course that you're seeing now that you just never imagined you would have seen this decade? Is there something out there, any, any specific technology or solution that just 
you didn't see coming 10 years ago? Oh, that's, a good, that's a great question. Um, technology, well, I mean, the, the, the GPS and the robotics, you know, you, everybody kind of looks at that as, eh, you know, I get it, but maybe not. I think we're, 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 the robotics is, I think Chris Tritabob at Hazeltine said he would, his next writer cup or PGA, I, I, and I apologize to Chris if I get this wrong, he, whatever event is coming back to Hazeltine, he's going to mow fairways and greens robotically. Now, that'll be a first. So that's pretty cool. We didn't have that. I never thought that would happen 10 years ago. You know, I'm standing at, at Pebble Beach in 2010 and, and, you know, having done three, four events prior to that, going, not a whole lot has changed other than the implements that we have to do it and the knowledge of the people doing it. But we have so much at our fingertips. Uh, I think the robotics and the irrigation systems are so technologically advanced that it's frightening, and especially with water, it's only going to get better. Um, chemicals, probably some of the designs, though we lose some, we gain some back. I just think the tools are better, guy. It's just how you use them. What about social media? Probably the explosion of turf Twitter is something that not many people envisioned in 2010. Has that been a a positive or a negative for the industry, or somewhere in between? I think it's both, because I think some some of us waste too much time on Twitter for no reason. Uh, but I, I I think I get it. You're air fine. I get it. The sun comes up on your golf course, and I get it. The sun goes down. That's all great. But what is what I like is that I try to follow a variety of different individuals because I'm looking for information. Uh, I'm trying to get smarter every day, and I like to hear from people who do things a different way or come up with a different idea. And I've seen, and I can't recall, but I know I've seen some interesting things. I go, wow, that's a hell of an idea. That's pretty good. And then I'll retweet it because maybe someone can benefit. That's the positive side to our agronomic tweets is that if you're in New Jersey, you can learn from someone in New Mexico. If you're in New Mexico, you can learn from someone in, in Oregon. And if you're in Oregon, you can learn something from someone in Kansas. And I think that's very cool about the industry. The interesting thing about golf, the fundamentals of our industry are the same. If you're a golfer, squared impact, the ball goes straight. If you're a construction guy, poop flows downhill, so you want to get rid of water. The fundamentals are there. But if we can keep learning from one another how to do it better... And then that's what, to me, the benefit of the social media craze is. So in 2020, you'll have a PGA championship played on a municipal course on the West Coast, a U.S. Open played on a restored private course on the East Coast, and the Ryder Cup played in the Midwest on a resort course plus the Masters. How big of a year do you think it could be for golf? How excited are you for 2020 and some of the events that loom? I'm excited every morning I roll out of bed. I thank God I'm able to do it again. So I'm always looking forward to the next year. I have a lot of interest. Uh, I, I I had a pretty good year again this year. I'm very thankful and blessed to have uh, work, and I appreciate those who asked me to come and give my opinion on things. So I'm looking forward to another fun year next year. Um, you got me on the Ryder Cup. Whistling Straits. Uh, yes, Michael. Michael Lee. Whistley Strait's going to be a great spot for the Ryder Cup. So, and, and, and kind of you could put in air quotes, it is a daily fee facility. You know, it's not, 
you can go there. And that's kind of what I think should happen for the majors, which is why the USGA and the PGA are wise to bring their uh, championships to uh, facilities that we all can play. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with Wingfoot, Wingfoot, but you're not driving up, you know, paying for a night at the club and being able to get a tee time. That's not going to happen. Uh, Wingfoot is going to be really cool. Steve Rabideau is an outstanding superintendent. I'm looking forward to seeing the difference between 06 and next year. Uh, we had a really good open in 06, uh, other than Phil kind of having a brain fart on the 72nd tee. It was fabulous, and they did a great job. So I'll be interested to see what Steve does. You know, he's been kind enough to ask, you know, if you're in the neighborhood, uh, come on by. I just haven't had the opportunity. So I will be looking forward to Wingfoot uh, next year in the Masters. You know, here comes Tiger back defending, so you never know. It'll be fun. Well, Tim, it'll also be fun to read your columns in 2020. Thanks for a great 2019 again. You're stacking uh, big years on top of big years here with the writing thing. We're very appreciative of everything you do, and more importantly, I know our readers are very appreciative of it. So thanks for the time. And No worries, Guy. I appreciate it, and uh, thank you.